Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Text Message. I'm Nate Langson. No Ian Morris this week because I'm still homeless. My new house is not ready to move into for another couple of weeks, which means my new studio is not ready to be built for another couple of weeks. But never fear, because CNET's Andrew Hoyle is here. Hello! Thanks for joining me this week. It's quite okay. Thanks for having me. Well, first up in news, Amazon. Now, Amazon got a bit of flack this morning by uh, a minister in the UK government here um, for not including a pamphlet that the government produces uh, and which advises buyers of drones and unmanned aerial vehicles about the dangers or, or really what safety procedure they should be invoking when they are flying their drones, one of which is don't fly near an airport. Common sense, you might argue. You might argue, but earlier this week, a pilot flying a a jet into Heathrow Airport reported that a drone collided with the plane. Now, that investigation is still ongoing. It's certainly not the first time we've heard of um, pilots and airports being concerned about drones, and that will be something we're undoubtedly going to return to in future. But the news is that a minister basically said Amazon should be including this pamphlet that the, that the government produces yeah. and Curry's and Argos and other big electronics retailers here in the UK, they include in the box, physical pamphlet in the box when somebody buys a drone from them. And it just advises them on common sense stuff. Don't fly near an airport. Don't fly over groups of people. Don't fly into government buildings. Yeah, if there's a child in a swimming pool, maybe don't fly near it if you've got a camera on your drone. There are things like that that are just plain sensible um but it has come under fire for um for not doing uh, not including this pamphlet. Said no basically yeah i mean so rupert goodwill and he's the minister for uh transport and he's a member of parliament obviously um said that amazon had basically refused to include this leaflet um and amazon had said that it's basically too complicated because they have so many products and they deliver to so many countries i think this is this is this is fine i i can completely understand amazon's side of the argument in this because amazon is a big company it has it has facilities all over the world and a lot of its products it doesn't keep in stock it will it will the it, the company that you buy from the company the product you've bought can often be shipped from outside of the uk so in order the amount of facilities it would need to put in place to put a uk specific uk government guideline into products that are shipping in the uk but not anywhere else would be just extremely difficult it feels like the onus could be on the manufacturers to include that in the same way that they include warranty information this is probably something i can see happening i mean i bought a camera a sony uh, camera recently and in the box it came with a huge amount of paper in every language under the sun almost yep. for you know things like warranty and, and setup manuals i mean it strikes the sort of thing you never read massive manual comes with it you chuck it away immediately but when you see the queen's stamp on a piece of paper i mean it's just not british to ignore that <laughs> no. so they could address that um i mean you know amazon has has uh, you know has said that it's it's basically it's too difficult to do this, but it strikes me that you know other companies are able to do this. So I sort of feel that it's sort of on. It's in the company's interest not to kept to be hammered with criticism 
like this and it does ship stuff in the uk and it and it can put anything it wants i mean it manages to put a lot of promotional leaflets in its boxes every time i buy so much as a book but it's true it is it is difficult to do that and and sure not impossible but the other companies you mentioned curry's pc world or wherever you know they are they're companies that are based in the uk all their operations are in the uk their stock is flown into the uk goes into their own uk-based sorting offices and then gets pushed out to their to their uh, to their stores so in that sense it's much more easier for them to just be like okay it's a drone there you go there's that leaflet and then have that sold on the shelves i would say the own and certainly with the experience that i've had with drones and writing about them and the problems we've had in the uk that the onus really needs to be on on the government and on the caa which is the the authority that sort of governs air traffic and stuff um they need to make these rules both much clearer and much easier to find the problem i found with using these drones and writing about them is that i'm still not entirely clear when i should be using a drone and when i shouldn't and what areas are fine the problem is is that those light those laws are they're so diverse and they cover a whole range of products and they cover different parts of the uk and london has its own subset and then even certain london boroughs do and then even within that some of the parks have their own rules depending on what the local councils want. For example, in London, you can go to some of like the common parks. Um, you know, we, we've flown them in Ealing, for example. No trouble at all. But the royal parks are different and you're not allowed to fly them in there you it's because it warrants. might hit a swan and the swans are protected property part of that is down to the fact that actually that um uh, they want to control what's filmed there because you need a license to film and you need to be able to pay them money so that you're not making money off their parks basically um but it's so complex there are so many different laws and and some of the laws are about the health and safety of flying um, an object over groups of people and some of them are down to privacy in terms of you're flying a camera over groups of people what can and can't you do there isn't an easy to find resource for this stuff and that's what people need so not just amazon saying here's what you can and can't do you need we need a resource of where people can go and know what they can do with the drones day for all here in Britain because of course this week, today, the Queen has turned the grand ripe old age of 90. And we here at Text Message do indeed honour Her Majesty, the Royal Highness. We give her the text message grand award of 90. Very good. Yes. Uh, happy birthday, the Queen. She is 90 years old, longest reigning monarch as of last year, and now first monarch to be 90, um, I assume, which is fantastic news well done and i thought it's only fair being british citizens to comment on this marvelous occasion even if it's just so i have another excuse to say i met the queen once and i told her all about podcasting and why it was interesting yeah didn't you that was, that was a good point that's the only reason i wanted to include this segment no i'm only kidding so we move on then <laughs> no um but i wanted to highlight this i mean it is interesting the queen's I mean, we can't be a uk focused podcast and not talk about the queen when it's basically all we've seen on the news um over the last few days but i i was looking around and i did a bit of googling for things like queen tech queen elizabeth technology things like that and i have to say i found a surprising amount of stuff that we can discuss regarding the queen and technology there is a lot i'm going to go through a few of these things just to mark her Majesty's birthday um i mean firstly news this week came out that buckingham palace wants to pay someone as little 
as £45,000 a year to run the Queen's Twitter and Facebook page. I had 50000 down for that amount, actually. It's the it's the job <laughs> where it was it was dependent on experience. Oh, right. If you went to uh, the royal household slash vx slash lang dash n dash gb slash mobile dash zero slash app center dash one and the rest, um, there's a short URL too. Head of digital engagement is the job posting you would have found there, and it says dependent on experience. And this is a really interesting job posting because it's um the section and the branch this is held in is Royal Communications, which is just a gotta be a it great a great title. Imagine this on a business card. Andrew Hoyle, head of digital engagement, Royal Communications, Buckingham Palace. Sounds like an address. That's the office I want. But but um but other things I found out um about the Queen, one of which I knew is that she sent one of the first emails back in the 1970s. And I already knew that, but um, I found this great article on thememo.com that says why Queen Elizabeth II is the Queen of Technology. Um, Here are some interesting Queen-related tech facts that I found. 1953 was the world's first major televised event in 3D. That was the Queen's coronation. And apparently she absolutely insisted that the coronation would be filmed in front of TV cameras, but it was actually recorded in an experimental form of 3D that blended colour and black and white pictures. Um, People only generally watched it in black and white because, um, you know, most people didn't have TV sets at the time necessarily. But it was fantastic to think that, you know, 60 years ago, um, when people were just getting their heads around the idea of what television could be, the Queen was like, yeah, I want that, and yeah, I want it in 3D. Make it happen. So that was fun. A few years later, the very first televised Queen's speech, um, fairly standard. She's been doing that pretty much on cue every year since then. Um, but it was late 1970, 76, I think, uh, when the Queen visited an army base and sent one of the first ever emails. And this predates the creation of the World Wide Web by about eight years. Um, and she was emailing. 1997 was when she launched the first official website. Um, for about a decade now, she's had a podcast and an official YouTube channel. The Queen's got a podcast? Yep. Does uh, she host it? Uh... I don't know, but I suspect she was on it. Otherwise, it would be a bitter disappointment. Um, but apparently, she bought an iPod in 2005. No, right. So here's, here's what I... when I was inter- Interrupt. Because I, um, a couple of years ago, wanted to do, like, you know, a roundup feature on the technology that the Queen uses. The problem is, is when you Google this, is that all of the technology that the Queen apparently uses has all been gifted to her as a PR stud. So Samsung, a few years ago, they gifted her a Samsung Galaxy Tab, and then they sent out these press releases of, oh, the Queen uses the Galaxy Tab. But she doesn't use it. Like, she's been given it. doesn't mean that she uses it. Well, either way, um, she was broadcast in 3D in 2012 for her Christmas message. And uh, again, on the the, the memo, the website, um, there's a great quote from Buckingham Palace that reads thus. We wanted to do something a bit different and special in this Jubilee year. So doing it for the first time in 3D seemed a good thing, technology-wise. The Queen absolutely agreed straight away. There was no need convincing her at all. She was absolutely ready to embrace something new this year. Because she wanted to go and reach towards a camera so she can do those spooky 3D effects. Indeed. And then a couple of years later, in 2014, she sent her first tweet that she personally typed out on an iPhone from the Science Museum. You say, you say she's queen of tech. Now, I think that 
she was always going to be queen of tech because she's the only queen that we've had during this rise of of this new technology of smartphones and the internet i'm sure people said oh the queen of tech when the wheel was invented and we had the first monarch who used the wheel and the fire yeah but that would be irrelevant for this podcast so let's just focus on the best queen the current queen Well, in other anniversaries, um, before we get to an email and uh, talking about some Google antitrust fun, I wanted to mark the occasion of the Xbox's 10th anniversary. Microsoft is going to stop, the Xbox 360 specifically, Microsoft is going to stop manufacturing Xbox 360s after 10 years. Um, It was celebrated as a blog post. There's not really a UK angle here on this at all, other than I bought one of the first ones when it came out and lived in the UK at the time. Um, But I did think it was worth noting. Andy, have you got some fond memories of the Xbox 360? I have fond memories of using it and playing games and holding the controller. Um, It's great. No, I'm surprised it's 10 years. Actually, it doesn't feel like um, 10 years, but I suppose it must have been. Um, Got some numbers here. I wonder if you wanted to to guess. How many... um, gaming hours have been played in total on the xbox 360 in 10 years oh my god so this is the total number of hours that games have been running on all global xboxes ever sold ever and i have the exact number here that must be an amazing number and throw a guess out there okay uh a hundred billion you're quite close. Am I? I'll be honest. You're, you've overshot the market. You've overegged the old Xbox pudding, um, which was never a game, but could very easily have been. <laughs> could you imagine if Mary Berry had done a Kinect-enabled Great British Bake Off where you baked with her with a Kinect? Well, that's the next Vive release, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. No. Yeah, Mary Berry and Vive. Bollocks. We've not seen. To, no. Yeah, You're lying. I'm you? lying. The the number the, the, the number answer <laughs> only seventy eight billion gaming hours. Have I been was played. close. Yeah. Now gamer score points. Sorry, were you um, slightly annoyed though that when you do one of those, oh guess how many, and you know knowing that it's a big number and someone guesses a bigger number, so the number you then give uh, just seems less exciting. It's kind of like asking for a pay rise and not quite getting the amount that you thought was fairly realistic. The the number of total gamer score points ever in total accumulated over the last ten years. Now, mm. bearing in mind, I'll give you a clue here. Mm. There is generally, and this has been massively fluctuating over the years, depending on DLC and re-releases and stuff. But generally, a new game on the Xbox had a thousand gamer score points if you completed every achievement that it had to unlock at launch. I'm going to guess at two hundred billion. Way undershot. Wow, okay. Way undershot. The answer is 486 billion. Whoa! And that's that's across 27 billion individual achievements. And how many of those were you? Uh, My gamer score, I think, when I switched over to being a PC gamer, was, I think, just a hair under 50,000. Right. I got most of mine from the Gears of War's and I'm hoping to uh, cash in a few more when Gears of War 4 comes out. Mm. The first game I ever got um, all 1,000 achievement points for was Tomb Raider Legend, I believe it was. 
which was a tremendous game. Yeah, it was good fun. Played it to completion several times. Um, yeah, so happy birthday and happy funeral, I guess, Xbox 360. Welcoming your fun memories of the Xbox 360 at podcast at natelangson.com. What was the first game you ever unlocked every single achievement point for? And what is your favorite ever achievement? Mine was five points for pressing start at the beginning of the Simpsons game. <laughs> Well, before we mosey on into our final story of the day, Google's fun with Europe, I've got a, an email here. We've got a few emails in the uh, in the back catalogue here to get to, but I wanted to pick this one out that uh, that only came in this morning, actually, from Jacob, who says, Hi, Nate and Ian. <laughs> no love for you, Andy. Oh, that's a shame. It is, isn't it? I uh, just discovered your show a few weeks ago, and I'm really enjoying it. I'm in the US and just posted a review on the iTunes store. You have 14 reviews there now. Thank you very much, America. There's about 300 million of you over there, so some of you are slacking. Can't wait to catch up with newer shows. I like to listen from the beginning. You all are funny, engaging, and make the show accessible and entertaining for this casual tech consumer. Keep it up. Uh, uh, That's from Jacob. So thank you very much, Jacob, and thanks for leaving a review. This is a very convenient way of saying if you haven't left us a review in iTunes, that is the equivalent, in my eyes, of you giving something back for the many, many hours that we spend putting the show together. We don't want your money, we don't want advertisers, but we do like people to hear about the show. So leave us a review in iTunes, that really helps more than you can possibly imagine. Um, Also helpful, telling a friend, telling a colleague about the show, and helping them to install it on their phone if they haven't used podcasts before. Not just our show, any show. Obviously, Tom Merritt's... Or the Scene at UK podcast. Or the Scene at UK podcast, indeed. Maybe if you send fawning praise, I'll read that out as well. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, this could be cross-collaboration if Jacob also listens to the Scene at UK podcast. Well, why not? Indeed. Um, But thank you, Jacob, and thank you to those uh, 14 people in the US who've left reviews there so far. The more, the better. Uh, it's uh, incredibly highly appreciated so thank you very much more emails next week um, all being well and they can be sent to podcast at natelangson.com Well, finally, this week, uh, not going to go into massive amounts of detail on this one because it does get very, very heavy with legal discussions, but I really couldn't ignore it given that it's happening on our doorstep. Google has been accused by the European Commission of basically being a little over-ambitious in wielding its power in the phone operating system space. Um, And it's being accused of basically imposing search and web apps uh, uh, apps basically uh, web search and all that kind of stuff on too many of europe's mobile phone users and having too much dominance over the market about 90 percent of all smartphones in europe run android and the commission has sent google a formal complaint that says um that it's basically forging highly restrictive contact uh, contracts with makers of phones and tablets um that say they have to install uh, its search engine by default on new phones and that it's unfairly paying uh, makers of those phones and devices and even telecoms operators um, in order to make Google's search engine the default on the devices. And there's a quote from uh, the uh, competition commissioner, Margaret Vestager, um, who says, quote, what we found is that Google pursues an overall strategy on mobile devices to protect and expand its dominant position in internet search. 
Uh, over half of internet traffic takes place on mobile devices, she points out. And the idea here is that it, this is sort of opening up a conversation for the EU to have with Google and for Google to um, have its say. And, and Google, you know, for its for its credit, says that it, it that you know a lot of these um, deals are optional and that companies don't necessarily have to take them, and that they've created a an ecosystem that's allowed for you know entirely new types of services and apps to exist um, at no cost, and it's created in a, a vibrant market. So your overview there seems to suggest that the EU's biggest problem is that Google is uh, forcing um, Android uh, developers to use the Google search engine as a default. So what's their alternative? Ask Jeeves. I mean, Google is for everyone's default search engine because it's basically the search engine. It is. We don't use Alta Vista anymore because it's not 1997. Well, the question is, why don't we use others anymore? Because in the US, for example, Bing and Yahoo has a much <laughs> higher... Well, we laugh now, but the percentage, <laughs> we, we the percentages are much, much higher over there. A lot more people use it. Um, uh, whereas over here... Let it's me just, bing that for you. I just don't see it. Yeah, that has been bung. But over here, it's it's so predominantly Google. And there are, there are complaints. You know, a lot of the... Uh, complaints from from companies who have raised their hand and said, look, this just isn't on, have been makers of alternative app stores that say, you know, there's one called Aptoid that is basically like a white label service for making um, alternative app stores. If you're a device maker or if you're a telecoms operator, you can say, we don't want to use this default app store. We want to make our own app store. This company will will let them do that. The problem is there that Google won't allow that app store to be distributed via the Google Play Store, which is where most people get their apps from. And simultaneous to that, it's become a lot harder, so say the complainants, to install these manually, you know, sideloading, because there are just now so many security prompts and warnings about security risks that the friction is effectively, and there is a quote from one of the complainants, scaring them off, them being consumers installing this stuff. So it's basically saying you can't you can distribute this yourself and and install it that's no problem but they made that really hard to do and the really easy way of getting apps onto people's phone they ban them from doing and also strike up agreements with device makers that say if you're going to use this official android software you have to install these default apps and also you can't sell other devices that don't run the official android software for me i would kind of my gut instinct is my house, my rules. Google makes this software. Google makes this product, and it says you use if you want to use um, a Google certified version of Android on your phone, then you have Google services on there. You have the Play Store, but there are plenty of forked versions of Android going around, Cyanogen, all these other things where you can use whatever you want. It's very open, and you can put this stuff on. Why is that bad? Well, put it this way: if you are a phone operator or a phone company. And you want to, let's say, let's just make this up. And none of these people are named in these complaints. So this is purely me making it up for the ease of explaining the situation. Let's say you're Orange and you're trying to compete with Vodafone. And you say, well, we're going to put money, marketing, effort, product support, all this kind of stuff behind this phone that doesn't have the Play Store. Therefore, doesn't have any of the official apps that you want, doesn't have the support of Google. Um... That gives an immediate advantage to Vodafone in this scenario. Say, come to us. You get all this Google stuff, all this familiar stuff you know. 
there's a competitive disadvantage to not offering that because could you imagine... A, so why would, just wouldn't they offer it with Because Google? there are contracts in place as well, allegedly, that say that device makers, so companies like Acer is one that's been cited, were going to release a forked version of Android on a phone in China. And after complaints from Google that it was violating the contracts they have in order to be a part of the Open Handset Alliance, they pulled it. They, they didn't release the product that had the forked Android on because they were scared of Google pulling their ability to provide an official version of Android that has Play Store, thus competitive disadvantage, thus a lot of pissed off people. So there are a lot of arguments in this. It's very, very detailed. There are many places you can read write-ups about it. I'm not going to bother um, listing them here. It's been widely covered. But what I would say is... It's highly likely you're going to hear a lot about this. It's highly likely you're going to hear a lot from Google um, talking about the advantages that they give to the open software community. And I would say, you know, before taking a definitive opinion on whether Google's doing things right or wrong, read around the facts. Because I have to say, I've been kind of immersed in this story for the last couple of weeks because we've been anticipating it landing for a while. And the nuances and the devils in the details here are quite significant, very interesting. I find it confusing, even as someone who is immersed in tech as much as I am, that there is so much argument on both sides. And, and as I say, my gut instinct is, is, is to be on, on Google's side. You know, business is business. It's made a great product. It wants to protect its interests. That's, but let's, you know, like we, we, I, th- I think in, on the surface is wrong to smack, to control a company just because it's got so big. But there's a key point. It is not illegal to have a monopoly. It is illegal to abuse one. No, absolutely. And the, the argument here is not that it's a bad thing that Google necessarily has done so well. The problem, like with Microsoft and IE back in the day where it was pushing IE onto everyone by default and it was on 90-odd percent of the world's computers, they got smacked by the European Commission for the same reason. The argument is you are not making it a viable business strategy to compete to not provide all your services. They paid a billion dollars, allegedly, to Apple just to be the default search provider on the iPhone. You know, you can't... How long is that? Well, it doesn't make it... That's business, isn't it? We want to put our service on there. That's paying for advertising. Like, we both have... We both work for websites where people will... Where companies will pay money in order to have their products advertised on the homepage. In a way, I don't see that as being different. Google has paid a sum of money to have its product featured on on, a, on on another product. That's almost like buying ad space. Well, this is why it's such an interesting case. And I could, I could offer up here a reason why I think you're wrong and there's a counteroffer. And I can offer a reason why you're absolutely right, which is basically just to agree with you. <laughs> um, the, 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 the fact of the matter is it's incredibly complicated and there are lots of fors and againsts, but we're likely going to hear quite a lot of this over the coming months as this investigation and this... Uh, this hearing goes on but let us know your thoughts i'm really very 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 keen to hear your thoughts on this do you agree with andy's point just then that this is just business and we shouldn't be basically you know shooting down google for making a product that lots of people like and that companies enjoy uh being able to sell and make money off being able to sell or are you on the side of the smaller guys that are basically saying look it's not that you're, you've created something that we don't want to use. It's that, it's that you have struck up deals and you've made the industry so afraid to take a chance on us and made it harder for us to get people to install our stuff around your official channels. 
That sounds like a loaded question against me. FYI, I'm not only on the side of big business. I'm, uh, yeah. Um, I, my, I actually reside somewhere in the middle. Well, yeah, so do I. To be honest, I think there should be a choice. I'm and trying I- to play devil's advocate on the side of Google to try and understand uh, the story. But And while I, I do believe that, you know, if a company's done well, it deserves to reap those profits, I, I do disagree that it should be able to hold dominance... Um, uh, at the ne- when it, when when particularly when that comes to negatively impact other businesses, mm-hmm. that shouldn't be allowed. And abusing monopolies, as you say, shouldn't be allowed. But I, I feel that it's that that striking it down for doing things purely because it's big um, is wrong. Well, it's 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 a fascinating situation. Let us know what you think and uh, where you stand on this issue, or if you've got any questions about it, you know, by all means send those in. I, I'll be honest, I've kind of only I just... have a few. Yes, okay. Podcast at natelangson.com. That is where we will hear them. That's it for this week. Mr. Andrew of Hoyle, thank you for stepping in and uh, joining us in my hour of, uh, well, my, my fortnight of homeless need. Let everyone know what you're up to at the moment, where people can check you out. You can find me on cnet.com. Um, that is where I write for, and it is the best source for all of your tech news. Um, or you can find me on Twitter with at batteryhq. Absolutely. And until maybe next week, depending on how my homeless situation (laughs) develops, we may have to skip another show um, until the first week in May when we'll definitely be back. Uh, But until that fateful moment, to the pit. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.